there's a reason that a coffee sings out to you on the table. Mm. There's something that you, you found that you've either never tasted before, it tastes amazing, or, or this particular expression of it is unique. And so finding ways to use your roast profile to maximize that unique experience and, and kind of, in a way, chase that flavor experience down mm. and be able to provide that to your customers. That's, basic, that's the biggest thing that informs my roasting. Like, there are a few little guidelines that I tend to go by. Welcome to or welcome back to Coffee with April. My name is Patrick Rolf, and this is a conversation with some amazing professionals and entrepreneurs in the coffee industry. Sharing their perspective and experience, it's about integrity, quality, and the future. For this episode, we had the opportunity of sitting down with Mr. Rob Huss, arguably one of the most well-known coffee roasters in the world, as well as consultants. This was right after the Loring workshop here in Copenhagen, and we're really happy to be able to share an insight um, into his world and how he looks at coffee roasting. So welcome guys, we're, we're doing this, yeah exactly, this is the first time we're doing this with camera as well, so yep. for, for those of you that will listen to this, you can also actually watch this now on, on YouTube, let's see how that turns out. I'm standing in Copenhagen, uh, in, in our roastery or the factory here at Copenhagen, uh, the Loring showroom together with Rob. Yeah, hi. Finally, um, it's been, uh, I mean, for anyone roasting, you know, everyone comes across your work, I think at one point in the mm -hmm. career. Uh, definitely your, the book you did, which we're going to talk about later as well. Uh, but we haven't had the opportunity to finally have a yeah, conversation about ships coffee. in the night a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Um, what brings you to Copenhagen? Yeah, so uh, we're here and we're doing uh, Loring Roaster training, uh, which has been a lot of fun. Did it over the last three days, uh, specifically focusing on getting some people ready to be uh, demonstrators and trainers for Loring in Europe. And uh, yeah. It's been an absolute pleasure to be able to come over and do that. Yeah, super cool. And we was, uh, well, we, we saw each other briefly in Paris as well. Yep. Uh, before this, for their, it wasn't their national roasting competition, it was something else, but mm -hmm. the, it was a roasting competition, I think. Yeah. Um, and then also just very briefly passed you in the hall in Boston. Yes, for sure. <laughs> and I think even outside the conference in Seattle as well, like to, super yeah. quick. Yeah. The guy went up to you and I'm like, uh, so it's, it's super cool to finally have some time together, right? And this whole Loring uh, uh, workshop has also been really, really interesting. As most of you know, I've been roasting on Loring for, for quite some time. Mm -hmm. But what we've been, done now is, is a more of a deep dive into the actual uh, technology, I mm -hmm. would say, and the research that's gone into roasting from the Loring aspect of things as well. Mm -hmm. uh, and roasting is, is one of those things that can be really... Uh, artisanal and a bit arty, and it can also be really technical depending on, on what you're into and not. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, as, as I mentioned before as well, you're, when I think of Loring, I think of you, mm -hmm. right? You're a part of it, right? There's a few people that we mentioned together with, with the brand of Loring, and you've been in the, in the forefront of that for a very long time. Yep. Um, and I'm personally very interested in learning where, that, where did that come from? Yeah, absolutely. So. Uh, a lot of it came down to when I actually made the move to Portland, Oregon from Cincinnati, Ohio, where I uh, first learned to roast. And uh, when I was getting ready to move out there, uh, it's actually kind of an amazing story. I contacted my boss because one of the baristas that I had trained, because I did barista training as well, 
Have was moved that before, a, was that before roasting? Uh, so I did it con uh, at the same time as roasting also, but yeah, I was a barista trainer before being a roaster. Okay, cool. And then I uh, was doing it while I was roasting for the shop in Cincy. And uh, one of the people that left our shop in Cincy to move to Portland to kind of make it as a barista in the, in the mm. big city, um, when, when she was looking for job postings, saw the job posting for Nosa Familia, where I'm currently at. And uh, Cassandra said, Rob, these people look like an uh, ethical fit for like, the way that you think of coffee. Uh -huh. And I would apply, but I have no experience, so I think you should apply and try and come out. And so uh, I chatted with Augusto, who's the owner of Nosa Familia, or the president, you should say, I guess, uh, twice over the Skype, and put in my two weeks' notice. And two weeks to the day that I put in my notice, I landed in Portland. Oh, wow. And uh, some friends helped bring uh, stuff over and yeah. then crashed with me for a little bit and enjoyed Portland. Uh, but yeah, that's was my first encounter with Alluring because my boss was an engineer, yeah. and he absolutely adored the engineering on Alluring. And at the time, they were still relatively unheard of. Mm. And because uh, you told us during the workshop, now you had machine number six. Yeah, was that correct? Yeah, yeah. Sure. So it's like one of the really, really first ones, right? Yeah, yeah. And we acquired it used actually from Flying Goat Coffee in California. Sure. Um, so when. You know that that roaster arrived and was basically in the facility the day I arrived, and so my whole first day at Nosa was actually assembling the 35. That was uh, a good, since good it was, start now, yeah. Yeah, since it was used uh, with no instructions, mm -hmm. um, and so oh, wow. yeah, it was. A, and that that went perfectly fine, or was that a? It, it took a little bit of figuring out, sure. and you know, at, at the time I hadn't heard of Loring or anything, and uh, so it, it definitely took a little bit of adjustment in terms of figuring it out. But uh, it wasn't too long after, because that was end of January, so January 31st, 2012, my official day being February 1st. Uh, in April that year, during SCA Expo, felt pretty sorted on the machine, and that's actually when I met uh, Mark. Uh, Loring uh, sure. for the first time, as well as Scott Robinson, who works for Loring. Yeah. And uh, we just hit it off really well with them because they had inquired if they could do a demo uh, there in 2012 on the Loring machine uh, since SCA was, in, or SCAA back then was in Portland. Yeah, sure. And so they came out and spent a whole day with us and were absolutely fabulous. Even though we had a used machine, uh, they wanted to make sure it was in tip top shape. So they literally pulled the whole machine apart yeah. and checked every piece. Uh, I think they put a, a brand new burner on it for us, uh, checked everything, refurbed it, and then uh, during the demo, uh, they decided that they liked how much, uh, liked the way that I was roasting on, on the roaster and talking about it and how I'd figured it out so quickly, so well that they actually started uh, bringing me down as a consultant to work with them in Santa Rosa on uh, product development, testing, ah, stuff okay, like that. amazing. Yeah. So you were basically one of the first consultants they ever work with then, right? I have no idea, but yeah. uh, it, it was earlier on, so maybe, but yeah. yeah, yeah. Cool. And that was a natural, because I think a lot of people are, I mean, it's, it's, it's always interesting when you look at roasters, there's very few of them that I think have done the, the kind of journey that you have done with, with books, mm -hmm. brand ambassador for Loring, more or less, I think that's what you can call it, uh, yeah. plus basically head roaster. Um, how do you how do you fit everything? <laughs> how do how do you make all of that make sense? Because right? uh, it's it's and also from a career path. Because I think as a, a coffee roaster, it's or a coffee professional in general, it's just mm -hmm. hard to decide where you want to go and how to get there. And mm -hmm. it seems like you just managed to do everything. Yeah, I, I mean the the whole book and, and the process around that and, and the direction I've gone is really just kind of come in some ways. Uh, there's, there's definitely a bit of luck behind all of it. Um, when I was working in Cincinnati, Ohio, we didn't 
as a company, we didn't really have the money uh, or the, the staff time to be able to send someone to go to an event mm. uh, of really any kind. We could do sometimes local barista throwdowns, but that was about the extent of it. So I definitely felt when I was in Cincinnati uh, a little bit isolated in terms of the overall roasting community. Yeah, sure. There wasn't as much online back then either, and, and a lot of the people, and this happens some places more so than others, but uh, a lot of the people back then were very guarded. Uh, they felt like they were protecting some sort of big secret when it came to how to roast coffee. Yeah. And so the decision I ended up making was that I was going to just buy a one kilo roaster and just experiment as objectively as I possibly could until I figured out why certain flavors seemed to show up and why they didn't mm. in certain coffees and with certain roast profiles and all of that sort of stuff. So uh, that ended up being the, the process I started on there. Uh, never necessarily intending to publish a book uh, until later on down the road. So then uh, when I moved to Portland, I had already had relationships with uh, some farmers in Guatemala that okay. uh, I've worked with now since I think we figured out 2010. That's yeah. when I first went down and visited Julio down uh, in, in Santa Maria de Jesus and uh, kind of partnered up with them uh, for the long haul, helped invest a little bit in their, their production so they didn't have to pre-finance their harvest themselves by doing mm. microloans, yeah. um, stuff like that. And so when I moved over to work with Augusto at Nosa Familia Coffee in Portland, uh, brought that relationship with me. And Augusto was kind enough to uh, change some of the mentality behind the company, which formerly was Nosa Familia being our family, yeah. because his family grew coffee in Brazil. Ah, and okay. so we buy a lot, yes, yeah, so yeah. like uh, Fazenda Cachoeira de Grama, Fazenda de Creo, uh, Vereda, São Francisco, all of these are relatives of Augusto's. And so, sure. uh, but he decided then that it should shift from meaning, uh, literally we're buying my family's coffee, uh, to it, it should mean our family in the sense that we treat everyone that we work with as if they are family. Uh, and hopefully you listening in have a positive idea of what family is. If not, I'm, I'm sorry for that. But yeah, uh, sure. the idea is the positive version of family, I guess. <laughs> yes, Ali. Um, but uh, yeah, so then I, I worked as the, the lead roaster there as well as the green coffee buyer and the barista trainer and sometimes would uh, pull production shifts or barista shifts depending on uh, what the need was. Sure. So doing a little bit of everything, yeah. uh, all while also fitting in time to do research for what ended up becoming the book. Uh, and once I felt like I had arrived at a place where I had something worth saying or that I thought might be worth saying, uh, that's when I decided to actually uh, put down the words yeah. uh, and failed miserably at that for quite some time. And, sure. and my wife, Laura, actually had the best advice ever to me, she said, you keep writing it and deleting it all, and then writing it and deleting it all. You just need to get everything out on paper, mm. and so go out in the garage, which is where my computer was at the time. So go out in the garage with whiskey, and just put everything down all at once. Don't edit yourself, don't do anything. Yeah. And uh, I followed that advice, and uh, within a couple of days had all, the, I mean, they'd been bouncing around in my head for quite some time, and. I already had all the research and citations that were in there kind of collated and ready to go. Mm. And so it, it took only a few days to hammer it out. And mm. then the editing process, which took a substantial amount of time longer. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, I mean, I think it's fair to say with books, I mean, it's, it's something every, everyone wants to say they've written a book, but they don't want to actually write a book. Because when you, when you get your hands dirty and you sit there, you realize that it's actually a tons and tons of work. It's not an easy process. Yeah. And more than often, as you say as well, it's you end up in a situation where you have a clear view maybe of, of how you want other people to portray you. And mm -hmm. you think when you read what you wrote that that doesn't come out. Uh, but then what you really need is someone else to just objectively look at it and determine if it's, it's good or bad yeah. uh, instead of you yourself criticizing it because then you're never going to be done, right? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, it's definitely been a nerve-wracking process because then also everything's in stone in, in a sense. Like at, at this point in time, here's what Rob thought about roasting, and if it came out to be complete and utter uh, yeah. bullshit, I don't know if I can say that on your uh, no, podcast. You, okay, you, you would say whatever you yeah. want here. If it, I mean, if, it come, if it came out to be absolute bullshit, then it's it's you know my reputation. I think, I think it's a, I think it's a great book personally. <laughs> I mean, it's it's I think that was the uh, main thing with with Scott's original book as well mm-hmm. when when he bought like wrote the first profile book or whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. It was also like, I mean, it's always scary when you put something out there, especially in a industry that is so young mm-hmm. and a trade that is so young and we're still learning, we're progressing. Um, I say myself to people that for, if they for some reason have consultations with me or, or try to learn from what we do, then you know, if you come back to me six months from now, I'm gonna tell you something different, yeah. right? Because it's a process and, and and you learn, and I think that's part of the beauty with uh, with doing it. And I mean, it also it, it requires a fair amount of guts to write it down, mm. right? Because as you say, it's people love to criticize yep. uh, well, stuff. And, and, and I took a sidestep, so I, I called it a manifesto, thinking that uh, by calling it a manifesto, it would portray the fact that I'm just saying these are my it's coming, uh, it's opinions. It's coming from you, it's, it's, yeah, yeah, sure, and and not necessarily claiming uh, complete fact because I, I don't have the scientific instruments to test a, a lot of it. Yeah, um, sure. We've done some testing and some things have come out as we expected and some things maybe not. Yeah. Um, but uh, which is uh, per- currently working on a, a, a second iteration, but it's okay. Uh, it takes a lot longer with three children as. <laughs> Uh, as like one, one children per book, yeah, 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 sure, sure, sure. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so that kind of came out, and, and that really caused a huge uptick in the consultancy side of things uh, in yeah. terms of just ended up doing it a lot more. And so at a certain point, uh, we decided with NOSA that, hey, there's, I'm having to leave too much, and mm. uh, so we ended up bringing on uh, Kyle, uh, Kyle Brewer, who's our okay. head roaster now. Cool. Yeah. Uh, and he, so he does all the, the actual day-to-day roasting for NOSA, mm. uh, helps me with some profile development, so some mm. are profiles of his, his own creation. Mm. And then I handle mostly the uh, green buying, uh, the majority of the profile development, and then uh, general QAQC, both yeah. in our, our roastery and as well as our cafes. Yeah, so, really cool. Let's yeah. go back to, because this is something we touched on also. So again, we've been three days here at the factory mm-hmm. talking about roasting, roasting coffees as well. Yeah. They did a really, uh, a really not a mean test, a really good test, which I kind of failed on, but we did this uh, fun thing where you provided a, a profile, mm-hmm. which we didn't know before, and a three kilo batch size on this, because Loring recommends you push between 20% up to basically 100% yep. on the machine, right? So we got a, a, a three kilo baseline uh, profile that mm-hmm. we haven't seen before, burner changes or anything, and the job was kind of to, to follow that profile, yep. which was interesting but my, my point here is that we've been pretty technical um, mm-hmm. and we, we've been really kind of digging deep into some things and then I think the last thing you said was still like you know if, if we all love our coffees and our customers loves our coffee then you know it's a good time yeah and I think that's really nice because coffee whether we want to uh, or not at this point is I mean it's hobby science yeah at best yeah right which is on one side, from my perspective, that's really frustrating as well because I want to understand what it is we're trying to do. Mm-hmm. I think coffee is one of those, uh, at least coffee roasting is one of those few things where, and that might actually be part of the challenge where we can make tasty coffee mm-hmm. without needing to understand how we made tasty coffee. Yes, that is very true. And I think there's very few trades where you can do that because mm-hmm. most, most trades, especially mechanical, you need to kind of understand 
how to do something mm -hmm. to be able to achieve a good result. But here in coffee, we kind of we started to do coffee that people like in in different ways, subjectively, right? But you know, each roastery, and now we're trying to figure out what we actually did to make it make it taste that way, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really interesting, um, very complicated process. Yeah. Um, but from if we go back to the book as well, and I mean you guys should all read it, of course. Yeah, he's being too kind. It's better than ambient, so if you're wanting to, you know, kick off and go to sleep, it's the perfect recipe. No, but they should. I mean, and I think I mean back to what you said as well. It's, it's we talked a lot about that here as well. Different roast styles, different mm -hmm. roast approaches. I mean, I always emphasize that you can learn from everyone. Yeah, always, right? Always, mm -hmm. regardless of if they, you know, like their coffee, not like their coffee, whatever that is, right? Yeah. Uh, and I mean, this this few days have proven that as well, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's a lot you can learn. It's a lot you can understand from all kinds of roasters, right? So of course they should. Uh, but what are the kind of main things um, that you want to point out are the the most kind of interesting points of the book that you relate to the most or feel are the mm -hmm. most interesting at the moment? I mean, for me, it was more just trying to have. Uh like a, a tool or a cheat sheet to basically be able to be like, you know, I've roasted this coffee this way and here's what I'm tasting and I want to be able to get more X out of it. Mm. Uh, it. What part of the profile should I look at and how should I shift it to kind of make that come out a little bit more mm. uh, or make it appear at all if it's there in the coffee. And so uh, that's kind of the, the big goal with it all, honestly. Uh, and, and some of it's, you know, uh, I didn't put any timings in there because the timings are very different for everybody depending on your water, your style of brewing, your style sure, of roasting, sure. all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Uh, but the, uh, the like one example would be if you're roasting a coffee and uh, the acidity to you is a little bit too sharp, uh, then by giving it a longer development time to the same end temperature and color, uh, you can help reduce that acidity a little bit and, and kind of soften it somewhat. Yeah. Uh, not that one is good and one is bad, but it kind of helps you hopefully take uh, a step with your coffee in the direction that you want to go. So that's yeah. that's the main goal. Uh, and a lot of people, I think, felt frustrated initially that uh, it refers to baseline uh, for all these things and how many seconds are varied off baseline. And there's no written down baseline at all. And, uh, okay, sure. Uh, I'm, I'm always happy to provide it when people message me and stuff yep. like that, but the one thing I wanted to be very cognizant of is a lot of times we see people in the industry kind of look at something or, or look at somebody that they decide for one reason or another, they're like, oh, I, I respect this person, and so I'm going to roast like they do, which is yep. uh, a totally fine way of doing it too, but one of the things, and you mentioned this earlier, that I love about our industry is how different everybody goes at things. Mm. And, uh, you know, we could give the 10 roasters the exact same coffee, and most of them would come up with different expressions of that coffee, and we'd exactly. be able to taste different nuance and flavor. And, yeah. and I think that that's really unique and, and pretty amazing that we can own a style or that we can uh, you know, speak with our own voice when it comes to the artistic side of roasting, which is really which coffees you buy, how you choose to roast them, how you're presenting them to your customers, mm. and that sort of thing. Yeah, sure, and then as we touched upon many times as well during these days, you you don't want all coffee to taste the same, yeah. right? That would be incredibly boring. It'd be very dull. And, and I mean, then we also, we wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't need to be here anymore, right? Because why start a new coffee roastery if your goal is to make coffee that tastes in the way like coffee is already tasting, right? Yeah. If you don't bring anything new to the table, then, you know, why be there? Mm -hmm. uh, I think one of the things that, um, that I've also seen, I mean, I think that's a, you were a part of that Cropster 
iteration, right? They did a new update with the yellow, yellowing face, the different mm -hmm. faces, I think, yeah. which is something that I uh, often connect with you as a, as a roaster because that's kind of been a trademark of you now. Yeah. Do you want to go through that process a bit and what that was? Yeah, I mean, the, the Cropster folks were really nice uh, in, in that they've provided that as a tool um, and that they, they kind of uh, halfway say it to me. I mean, I'm not the first person that's noted color change or anything like that or, or first crack by any stretch since first crack's been documented for so long. Um, but the, the fact that they saw how I was roasting and at one point, I think in maybe it was 2013 or 2014, I sat down with the Cropster folks and, and mm. talked them through at length kind of the approach that I'm taking in, in the book uh, and what that meant. And they, they did iterate it, which was uh, you know, really lovely of them, and I'm, I'm yeah. definitely appreciative of that because uh, they sure didn't have to. But yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So. I think that's a really cool feature, and and especially after um, after these days now, that's something that I've been. I mean, it's 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 been in the back of my mind for a long time, mm -hmm. but I think that now the. The, the timing of temperatures, I think, becomes a bit more relevant. Mm -hmm. And I think we're still, we're still very much at a point where a lot of people, when roasting, are focusing a lot on crack and what happened there, yeah. and then not so much focus on what's happening uh, before that, right? Mm -hmm. uh, whether that is, is a turning point or yellowing and, and the kind of uh, faces we had there, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that's definitely something that I personally would take into, uh, into consideration as well. Um, if we go back to to the kind of very 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 beginning, um, how did you end up in coffee, and and why did you end up in coffee? Yeah, so uh, it's uh, it's definitely a funny slash embarrassing story. The first little go bit, for it. but uh, I love those. I, I definitely enjoyed as well. So uh, I used to go to church with my mom uh, pretty regularly, and uh, when I was there one time, uh, they said, "Hey, can you brew some coffee?" I was like, "Well, yeah, that sounds like a fine thing. I can I can figure this out." Hadn't brewed coffee before because you know, my mom would always brew it or my dad or something. Mm -hmm. And so I go to put coffee in the filter and I figure, well, if the filter is this tall, then that must be how much coffee you put in there. And so I took the filter all the way up to the very tip top and brewed it and it was a mess. It was yes. an absolute mess. So mm -hmm. uh, the next time I came back, they actually had a picture of me that I don't know where they got, must have gotten it from a friend of mine or from my mom. And had an X through it, so it was my face with a red X through it From over that, the coffee maker, yeah, basically nice. <laughs> saying, "Hey, you need to back off this, buddy." And uh, yeah, so uh, my friend at the time, uh, he's still my friend actually. We talk pretty regularly, but his name's Zach. And uh, Zach looked at me. He goes, "You know, people are becoming foodies these days. Uh. We both like coffee. What if coffee became our thing?" And uh, it was just like that casual, like, "Hey, what if this is something we got into?" Uh -huh. And so we would hang out nightly and uh, watch really terrible sci-fi movies together. I have a soft spot in my heart for really poorly directed, awful storyline, terrible you know, graphics uh -huh. movies. Yeah. Uh, I'm not going to name names because I don't want to get myself or you in any trouble by naming terrible movies off. But uh, We can do it in uh, the comments. Uh, yeah, in the comment <laughs> section, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so we'd watch like all these terrible movies. And every week, uh, he and I would both buy a pound of coffee. And we would, over the course of the week, French press it side by side Every single day, basically. Oh, that's pretty hardcore for um, being like just in the coffee. Yeah. yeah, just jump on in both yeah, feet, sure. I guess. And uh, you know, eventually we started being able to taste the difference between the co like. At first, it was like, oh, this is just it's coffee, and this one maybe is like lighter or darker. Yeah. And then we started being able to taste the difference. And then I, I remember uh, it was the one that always stuck out to both of us, and we've talked about it since. Was we had, we bought a Colombian cup of excellence coffee one year. 
and we tasted it and we got uh, what we considered at the time to be jalapeno mm. for the first time. It was the first time we really had a very distinct note that both of us were like freaking out about. And uh, so that kind of cemented it. Then when I went into college, um, I started working as a barista. Okay. What did you study at college? Oh, I'm allowed to ask that? Yes, you're, you're absolutely allowed to ask it. And so I will answer it as diplomatically as I can. Uh, I'm just kidding. Uh, so the, what I studied and, and where I'm at in my life now are very, very different. And so I say that because I don't want anyone to think that I still hold to certain ideas that are associated with it. But okay. uh, my realm of study was uh, preaching ministry. Oh, okay. So I was studying to become a minister. So I'm yeah. classically trained essentially in public speech uh, for my undergraduate. Oh, wow. And my master's was in uh, New Testament studies. Yeah. Uh, so I was going to go on to be a professor at a seminary was my goal. Sure. Um, uh, various life things happened uh, yeah. that kind of uh, have led me to the point where I'm away from the church entirely. Um, so it's, it's a bit weird to tell someone that you're a minister and then there's a lot of baggage that can come along with that. Sure. Mm-hmm. Or you're trained as a minister. I'm not a minister now. Although yeah. I might still be ordained in the state of Ohio technically, okay. but uh, yeah. I don't know if they follow up on that and yeah. cut people off their list or yeah. anything. So if you need a marriage in the state of Ohio, call this guy. <laughs> if it's still legal. But anyway, yeah. um, so ended up uh, moving away from that. And because I'd worked in coffee during college and mm. because I absolutely loved coffee, yeah. Uh, I went back to being a barista when I decided to separate myself from it, mm. uh, from from the religious part of that. So. And what is this stuff? Because I think that's. I mean, I still. <clears throat> it's not so many these days, but I mean, I've been I have been in coffee in uh, a few years now, and I think I still have friends that feel that they are whether well, in the industry, but they're they're stuck as baristas. Mm. So I'm, I'm really curious often how people manage to do that leap to something else in this industry, because mm. I believe there's a lot of people that are in the kind of, I mean, we're all baristas from the beginning. That's yeah. how 99% of us starts, right? But again, there's very few that actually manage to, to kind of take that next step. Yeah. Uh, or they go on to do other stuff with their life, right? How did you kind of manage to go from barista to, to roaster? Mm. So I was, uh, at the cafe I was working at, uh, once I got out of what I was doing, um, they had a roaster and I just kind of kept showing myself very interested in coffee and, um, you know, maybe more so than some of the people that were working with me. And so when they had the opportunity for somebody to start working in coffee, um, I was one of the few people that had shown a lot of genuine interest and had been there for a little bit. Mm. And so I was given the opportunity. I like to joke that my old boss also saw the opportunity because I could lift a bag of coffee by myself, <laughs> but he only had to staff one person. So it's a good test. Um, yeah. yeah, no, it's uh, I, don't, I definitely don't think it was that, but I, I showed interest and, and uh, worked really, really hard. And it is tough. And what I tell people whenever they ask me, because sometimes priests will ask me this question, and it, part of it's a gamble. Uh, so yeah. part of it is, like, uh, at our roastery in Portland, there's not a lot of turnover on the roasting side. Mm. Like, we have the same roasters for a long period of time. And so part of it is you have to put in time at a particular place and continuously show yourself as being interested. <clears throat> because you're going to end up trusting somebody with uh, the important task of roasting who you know. Um, and so you could have all of the, the capability in the world and you can have uh, all of the drive in the world. But if you're not a known person and you're trusted within the company to be timely, to be you know, responsible, to do all these things, sure. uh, then you're probably not going to get a chance. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's quite a lot of money 
connected to it, right? I mean, a, a yeah. fail, you guys have a 70 kilo loring now, a, a failed batch there. It's, it's, it's quite a lot yeah, of money, for example. Quite a lot, yeah. yeah. At minimum, that'd be what, you know, uh, 210 US dollars yeah. for a fail. Yeah. 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 So it's, uh, yeah, and, and it's hard because, you know, I, I understand people's desire to move around and try and find the next best thing. And it's, it's hard to want to stick at a place and stay in something that maybe doesn't fit your life at that time. Hmm. Uh, and as the big cities are getting more expensive, it's harder to be just a barista anywhere that's a big city. So, yeah, I think some people maybe even have an easier time getting into roasting by working for smaller companies in parts that are not so crowded because then they at least get the foot in the door as a roaster and get experience and then they're able to use that experience later. But coming in as a barista in a, in a larger city, uh, I think it would be very challenging to make the move up. Mm. Mm. But Yeah, sure. I mean, you need mm. a lot of, I personally had a lot of, sure, I, I had a lot of uh, invested hours. Mm. So, I mean, it was part of, as you say as well, building up trust in, in your first company and had them realize that you are someone they can, can depend on to do mm. stuff and get shit done. Um, but then also just a bit of luck. Right. Yes, absolute I mean, luck uh, as well. I had when when I first started, it was basically me packing coffee in the roastery, um, kind of alternating with with bursa shifts, and then the one roaster decided to quit, yeah. more or less. And you know, truth be told, if that person hadn't quit, I wouldn't be be roasting anytime soon, right? And yeah. would most likely not stand uh, here together with you as well, right? So it's yeah. a it's an interesting um, it's a really interesting process. Yeah, and we definitely have advantages too. I mean, there's there's still a lot of bias in the industry. And so uh, we come, uh, at least I can speak for myself in the US, uh, it's, it's a bit of a position of privilege being a white male as well. Sure. Um, yeah. uh, which is unfortunate with whether it be explicit or implicit bias on, on the part of people. Mm. Um, so, but yeah, so I agree with you. It's, it's a bit of luck like to be anywhere, I think. Mm -hmm. For sure. Yeah, we see that. I'm mean, especially, I mean, you know, back to the point that you just mentioned. Uh, there's still very few girls roasting coffee, yeah. for example, right? Uh, and I'm, I'm not sure why. I think that previously, in terms of staff that I've been hiring in, in other roasteries that I worked for, mm -hmm. it almost only was girls because they're better at so much things mm -hmm. than most guys are. The most more reliable, smarter, have a better sensory skill usually as well. Mm -hmm. uh, so I tend to kind of gravitate gravitate to that. Yeah. But um, so support. She's the roaster. Hashtag. She's the roaster. Yes, you should have had the T-shirt. No, you don't have the T-shirt. Yeah, I wore it the first day. Yeah, the yeah. T-shirt. Well, we're gonna post a picture with the T-shirt. Yeah. somewhere so that at people can see it, right? Yeah. Um, but I mean, to be fair, as I mentioned as well, I mean, girls have been basically killing it the last years yeah. in like coffee competitions and everything. I mean, you are getting better than we are more or less, right? So it's us that kind of needs to step up as well. But um, um, no, it's a, it's, a, it's a very, very interesting process. Mm -hmm. um, part of why we started this podcast uh, and, and why we do any of this kind of media stuff and mm -hmm. the craze that goes with it is that I'm thinking, um, a lot back on when I first started in coffee mm. and which was probably because I was a bit ignorant and pretentious and not smart enough to find information in the right places but it was pretty hard starting up mm. where it was very little information it was very little good information I think as well or like solid mm. kind of proven information um, what would you be for someone that is starting a coffee roastery from mm. from a roasting perspective what it is like picking machine green coffee profiles whatever yeah. what is the kind of what should people think about? How should they mm. start? What's the most important thing? I mean, you've been consulting, I don't know how many roasteries, but I'm, I'm sure there's quite a few of them. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm not sure either, but yeah, a decent, a decent number at least, yeah. I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, there's, there's, um, 
there's a lot to be said for what you mentioned earlier, which is uh, you know finding your own voice and kind of like if you're not bringing anything to the table, how you know how does that help differentiate you from other roasters or mm. or that sort of thing? So finding kind of your own voice and uh, you know sticking to that and and really having something to say because I think customers really identify with. Uh, your vision and once they understand and see your vision if they identify with it they're going to become a customer yeah sure uh, both in terms of the marketing the branding um, you know how you conduct yourself and then ultimately the coffee quality and, and all those sorts of things hopefully yeah uh, I, I think that uh, you know our, our customers identify with coffee quality probably later on in the chain where they identify more with the persona the perceived value, the branding, the the marketing, the social media a little bit sooner. So uh, people have asked me sometimes to come work for them and I tell them that they should actually hire a marketing consultant instead because they would get far better results, yeah. depending on what they're trying to do. Yeah. I don't know that the marketing consultant would be able to roast very well, but you know, you, know, you could be surprised <laughs> as well. Yeah. Um, but um, so that's definitely one thing. And then uh, some advice my, my grandma used to give all of us, which is funny because she would always uh, be a little bit harsher toward us. but. She says, listen to everybody's advice and then do as you damn well please. Sure. And so, like, there's nothing wrong with hearing what people are doing and considering it and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, especially if you're starting a business or if you're higher up and running a business, um, you have to make decisions that fit with what you're doing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So... Yeah. And I think that gets, I mean, in, increasingly more important. We, we, you mentioned that kind of as a, as a jokey thing before as well here, where it's like, um, we should probably not post these profiles on social media, right? And I think that's kind of interesting. I mean, most of us don't post any curves on social media anymore or whatever. And yeah. I mean, a big part of that is just comments, yeah. whether those are ignorant, smart, uh, aggressive, uh, thankful, whatever they are. It's just this, you know, it's just such a noisy environment when you do that. Yeah. And some people are so, so loud. I mean, I've been pretty loud in the past as well with, with my comments and mm -hmm. stuff. But uh, I mean, it's also at a certain point, you wonder why can't we all just be happy together yeah. uh, and kind of, you know, learn from each other and, and, and move forward together rather than kind of, as you mentioned, no, this turning point is, is too low or this time after crack is too short or yeah. you know, something along those lines. Here, right? And yeah. I mean, um, it's impossible to say that from a picture to begin with, yeah. which is very important. Right. Um, and it's um, it's interesting how that environment is. I was hoping that that would we would be over that now because mm -hmm. I think I saw that pretty strongly in terms of what you mentioned as well that when I first started there was very little conversation mm. about coffee roasting I think now it's a bit a bit more um, it's maybe still a bit kind of put the lid on certain things that mm -hmm. are, are not being discussed properly I think for sure um, then of course we have you know the roaster skills and stuff like that that is helpful for just a dialogue about roasting mm -hmm. um, but it just gets I think it's it's complicated if you want to move move forward and I'm, I'm curious when it comes to you as well how, how you will deal with that because now for example I mean you're a young guy you mm -hmm. have you wrote a book writing a second one or an uh, iteration of it um, you know famous roasting consultant um, famous head roaster yeah. too kind on both of those yeah but I mean true uh, I mean I'm <laughs> over it I, I've, when did I first hear about you that was many years ago, but I think you, I mean, you and Scott Rail are the two first names that pops up, mm. I think, in my kind of list of roasters that are not um, Scandinavian. Mm. Since I started to roast in Scandinavia, then, mm -hmm. you know, these are the people I'm, I'm going to be exposed to first, like Tim Menebo, yeah. Christian Gorbatson, and, and stuff like that. So 
uh, I think definitely you're, you're, you're already at a very high point in the industry. And I'm, mm. I'm wondering two things. I'm wondering uh, where will you go from, from here? Like mm. where does one go from here in terms of, you know, what's the next kind of level? Is there one? Mm. And two, um, who, who do you learn from? Oh. I mean, you're very much the educator at, at this no, point, but right? You, I mean, you said it already. I, I still learn from everybody. Like mm. there, and you know, we also learn. I think all the time from what we call happy accidents at work, where someone you know messes up and the profile's way off, and we get the you know the cropster email saying, ah, yeah, you know, this is way off track. You should check yeah. it out. And then we cup it, and we're like, the king is dead. Long live the king. All right. Yeah, well, this sure. this is the new profile. Yeah, actually works. Yeah, yeah. So we, I think, you know, we're always learning from our mistakes, and yeah. I think that. The thing that's kept me engaged in this industry for, for the time that it has and continues to keep me engaged is that there's no end to the learning. Mm. And I think when you, when you feel that you've reached the end, it just means you're not looking anymore. Um, because there's always somebody trying something new, something that you know, you've never heard of before. Um, and so I think we all have the opportunity to learn from each other. And I learn from you know, pretty much every consult that I ever do that I walk away with something, whether I make a connection that I hadn't made before, yeah. or uh, the person I'm working with is doing something that is really novel and, and interesting at the same time, and it, it becomes something I'm like, yeah, you know, like this isn't a bad thing you're doing. Like this, this is awesome. Like you should keep doing this. I've mm. never seen anyone do this before. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think that in, in terms of learning, I, I, I'm trying to be open-minded and learn as much as I can uh, all the time still. Um, for where do I go from here? I'm, I'm hoping uh, I move toward better work-life balance. Mm. Uh, I, sure. I have uh, an amazing wife growing. and yeah. three three small kids, and yeah. I miss them a great deal when I travel. But sure. at this point, it's just kind of part of it. So uh, finding ways to do that. Uh, we're, we're doing more uh, trainings, hopefully, in Portland so that I can be near my family, but also have people to the roastery and host them and show them the lovely city of Portland where we yeah. put bacon on Pretty much everything. Yeah. And if you're <laughs> vegan, we have vegan That's bacon. That's a very good thing, though. Yeah. And I mean, we're all coming um, next year. Yeah, for you told me SCA. That. That's, I didn't what know that. That's what I've heard. Which is so. amazing, right? So I've, I've always wanted to come. Yeah. yeah. So it's amazing. It's yeah. a great city. But uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, the thing for me is, I guess, I'm really happy with uh, working at Nosa Familia to the, to the degree that I do. And, and it allows me to engage with coffee farmers, which is probably one of the more rewarding parts, I think, mm. for me still, is mm. being able to work with producing partners who bring so much to the table and, uh, and, and you know, finding ways to pay them more or help them work on projects that they're interested in working on or um, just be there and be a part of their life and have them as part of my life. And mm. um, so that's a, a huge part forward for me as well as continuing that kind of work. Yeah. So. Oh, for sure. I mean, green coffee is, is, first of all, I mean, we, it doesn't matter if we learn how to roast better coffee. If the green coffee is not up to standard, we're, yep. we're not going to be able to do it, right? Yep. Um, and I'm curious, and on a bit more uh, maybe geekier level here, but um, different roast styles for, for different green coffees mm -hmm. is something that is quite often being discussed. Some people are doing it, some mm -hmm. people are don't. I think most people are at a point where they kind of try to separate different processing methods, at mm -hmm. least from like washed coffees to natural coffees. But where are, what are, do you have any tips and tricks when it comes to that? I mean, we have, mm -hmm. we have so much new coffee coming in, mainly let's say Ethiopian coffees, Kenyan coffees are, are fresh off the shelf soon mm -hmm. and people will start roasting them uh, versus, you know, if you take um, um, something from Costa Rica, where, where, 
what would you actually advise there in terms of terms of roasting, and how different do you need to be mm -hmm. to be able to to roast a tasty coffee? Yeah, so I think a lot of it comes down to where it fits in your portfolio, mm -hmm. and so uh, I try pretty much we never buy coffees without knowing where we're going to slot them in, whether it's going to go to a blend or a dark roast or a light roast or a single origin or kind of how it fits in. Um, so that's kind of the first thing that informs uh, my decision to roast is, is and even decision to buy is where is this going in our in our portfolio of coffee mm -hmm. and then finding coffees that fit that well so like uh, even uh, sample roasting darkly mm -hmm. and cupping coffees darkly to make sure that they actually hold up at, at a dark if level. that's intended to be dark in the end yeah, yeah sure mm -hmm. yeah, okay and uh, so then kind of within that uh, looking at what we find interesting or novel, especially like when we're talking single origins and light roasts, and mm. uh, what I've jokingly said a couple of times now, employee retention coffee, yeah, where sure. your customers may not be too savvy on it, keep but uh, yeah. you keep all of your employees happy and engaged. Sure. Uh, but but figuring out what's interesting or novel about that coffee, and then finding ways to highlight that, mm. uh, because most of us, when we're cupping for single origin purchase, uh, there's a reason that a coffee sings out to you on the table. Mm. There's something that you you found that you've either never tasted before, it tastes amazing, or, or this particular expression of it is unique. And so finding ways to use your roast profile to maximize that unique experience and, and kind of, in a way, chase that flavor experience down mm. and be able to provide that to your customers. Uh, so that's, basic, that's the biggest thing that informs my roasting. Like there are a few little guidelines that I tend to go by, like uh, by having a later first crack, you tend to, and, and this is just my opinion at this point, so there's no scientific data that I have per se to back this up, but for me, uh, you know, longer to first crack tends to give us a little bit heavier body or mouthfeel, longer mm. aftertaste, a little bit more bitterness, that sort of thing. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, if I'm wanting a coffee to be big or, you know, do like the traditional espresso style of roasting, I might push first crack back a little bit, whereas if I want to you know, have these floral notes really shining through or enhance the clarity of the coffee, I might go uh, quite a bit faster to first crack mm. uh, to, to really kind of be able to taste some of that. Do, do you keep the ratio of, of the yellowing face the same with um, um, a sooner or, or earlier crack? Or no, does it, that change as well? It can change as well, yeah. yeah. So it, it just depends on what I'm really trying to accentuate. And mm. that'll be even changing sometimes the, the phase between the beginning of the roast and the beginning of yellowing, so what mm. I've called, I think, drying in there. Yeah. Um, changing that around sometimes as well. Uh, just depends on how you plan to thermally load your roaster in order to achieve your profile. So mm. uh, sometimes if you're on a roaster that you know you, know you can't push real hard in the middle, uh, you have to choose your approach into yellow very carefully to make sure that you have enough momentum to carry through. Mm. Um, so. Yeah, so sometimes it's it's the machine that uh, puts constraints on what you're doing, and sometimes not. Um, but yeah, basically just roasting for for flavor with that regard, or like you know, as we talked about earlier, if I want more or less acidity, playing around with my development time to accentuate how that acidity plays out, playing with my end color to change the level of roast character and sweetness, mm. um, or perceived sweetness, is mm. the sucrose is probably still pretty pretty marginal at that point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
Very true. Where are you on the subject? And again, we don't want to be, which is something we talked a lot about here over these mm -hmm. days as well, where, where we, uh, I don't want us to, to, to compare the Loring machine with other machines mm -hmm. now, but I want you, as, as just from a personal experience, because you have been roasting on a lot of different machines. Mm -hmm. um, and we talked a lot about how do we define the, the Loring roast machine. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and you mentioned pretty, pretty strongly that it's, it's, it's a drum roaster mm -hmm. that's important to have with you. And we talked about the different kind of aspects of, of why that is and so on. But what would you say just from experience, and again, you can roast tasty coffee on all roast machines. Absolutely. Just learn how to understand how to use them and you'll be fine, right? I think the most important thing is that some of them you have to use a bit differently yes. to, to achieve the same result. But what would you say are the, is the main difference between, I mean, let's say let's say um, a probat that is often used at least mm -hmm. here in Europe or, or Diedrich or Loring or Gießen or whatever brand you want to refer to, mm -hmm. right? But what, what should people think about with the different machines? Yeah, so the, the biggest thing is thermocouple thickness. Uh, so you'll, you'll notice like um, when people first get on a Loring, they, they usually are a bit shocked that turnaround is at 45 seconds mm -hmm. and that their, their temperatures are all completely different and then also that it tends to need to end at a higher temperature than uh, what they may be accustomed to it roasting. It cracks different, it, it yellows yeah. different. It, Everything's you know. kind of all sideways and, yeah. th and that's primarily actually the, the thermocouple thickness. So. Uh, it's uh, for those in, in Europe. It's 1.56 millimeters, or uh, uh, one sixteenth of an inch. Uh, for those uh, listening in the U.S., which I think is the only country is still different? being standard. I oh, know, yeah, no, no, it's yeah, just, it's a, just a, measurement a commercial. Yeah, dec decimal point. <laughs> We've been talking uh, a lot about Celsius and, and Fahrenheit yeah, here the last. Yeah, week. we need to get up on our game and actually learn some. We should just all yeah. do Fahrenheit, don't? <laughs> I mean, isn't that more, is more accurate? We have more points. Yeah, but we have a decimal point now, though. So yeah, that's since, true. since there's a decimal point on the screen, it's kind we of... Sh we should all just have one language. Yeah. I think that's maybe the most important thing. Oh, yeah, that, that'd solve a bunch of things. Until picking the language, you'd have to just start a new one from scratch. Yeah, uh, which but, could be yeah. complicated. But, uh, yeah, so I think the thermocouple difference is the big one. So if, if, you, like, if you actually pulled the, the thermocouple out of the Loring and put an eighth-inch thermocouple in there, I think people would instantaneously feel more comfortable with it. Mm. Uh, their decision to go with a thinner thermocouple is, is about responsiveness and, yeah. and accuracy in that sense because uh, speed is accuracy when it comes to roasting because it's actually a really yeah. short process in general. Mm. Um, so I, I think that that's the biggest difference on the user side for people. Uh, people sometimes also freak out a little bit about the fact that, that burner and air are tied together yeah. um, because they've become accustomed to changing their airflow and their burner and uh, have a strong opinions about that one way or another. Yeah. Um, for me, it's, it's not an issue. Mm. And uh, yeah, I think you can get similar or the same flavors, uh, at least in terms of people's ability to perceive flavor. Yeah, I think that was it because mm -hmm. I came up here and, and I'm going to be honest and say that I don't really... I've not experienced enough to have a solid um, point on this, but mm -hmm. uh, something that you said during these days were that, that you don't believe you can taste a difference in between the machines, yeah. um, which the more I think about it, the more I think that makes sense, mm -hmm. actually, especially after these days. Mm -hmm. um, but that's, that's interesting because a lot of people I know would swear mm -hmm. that they're able to, for example, do that, right? Yeah, for sure. And, and you know, I, I would say that People have different levels of ability to taste, mm. for sure. Yeah. Uh, in the research I've been doing with Ann Cooper, uh, and she's a consultant based out of Melbourne, with absolutely fantastic coffee professional as well. Um, we've we found that uh, it's about 29% of the time people can actually taste the difference in a triangulation between, yeah. uh, you know, two cups obviously being of, from one roaster manufacturer and one cup being from the other. Yeah, uh, roasted to the same. Specs. Yes. Also with like color and then. Yeah. yeah. Whole bean ground color within a tolerance, I think, of 
1.5, I think is our goal. Yeah. Um, and then uh, I'd have to look, but yeah, and then everything else kind of being within the proper time segments, plus or minus, I think, 10 seconds. Um, so it, it's, you know, some people probably do better than others, but just in terms of talking about a global average, it seems like people have a very difficult time. Mm. Um, we're, we're getting some statistical analysis done on the, the data, which is going to be really fun to see what a statistician says about it. Uh, in, in my very crude way of thinking, it's mm. like, well, three cups, you've got a 33 and a third percent chance of getting it right, uh, random chance. So yeah. uh, my, my guess right now is that we're batting below random chance, but I'm not a statistician, so I'd, we're going to see how yeah. they say as well. Yeah. Uh, but I think it's at least compelling, and I think there are ways uh, to maybe do it even more precisely. So it, it's less about, like, are they chemically exactly the same if we send them through a GCMS? Uh, or, or something along those lines. But the, the real question is, can people actually taste the difference? Yeah. Um, and this is why, like for me, the, the reasons that you buy a roasting machine, you should never feel bullied into it because you uh, hear somebody say, oh, we have to do this machine to get this sort of a flavor. You have to do this machine to get this sort of a flavor. You should look at your cash flow. You should look at what size you need. You should look at all of the different factors uh, and make a choice that works well for your business. Uh, knowing that even if it's maybe not your first choice, you might be able, if you're successful, to do your first choice later on down the road. Um, but I, I think that that's important, uh, yeah. just to, to know that you have the ability to, uh, and I guess at this point I'm not being a very good brand ambassador if that's what I'm doing for learning, but, uh, but I mean, you know, it, if someone needs a one kilo roaster, then they need to buy a one kilo roaster to start. Yeah. And if that's what they have cash flow for, then that's great. They should yeah. live their dream and, and you know, give their voice to the coffee world, but yeah. Uh, yeah, you definitely don't want to buy a roaster that's incredibly large, go into debt, and then fail, and, and have all that debt hanging over you, just for your own personal well-being. Yeah, no, I think that's, I mean, I, I know that uh, uh, firsthand, well, actually not, I mean, I have a roastery without actually buying a roast machine, right? Mm -hmm. uh, which is, is um, for me, they're one of the only sustainable ways to do it, at least initially, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's about... Uh, being able to focus on on coffee with a, with a positive mind space, mm -hmm. um, and not feeling that oh no I need to pay off this machine now because it's crazy expensive right yeah. so uh, I think that's very very important to to start right mm -hmm. um, and then as you say I mean the the more I've been roasting the the more you realize that the differences people um, people are tasting are more based on for example probe mm. or or anything like that I think they have one of the best examples there and. Um, I mean, it's the, the kind of 20% rule uh, that we, we saw launched many years ago by Scott Rayo. Um, also a book that everyone should read, right? Mm -hmm. um, but that was an interesting process because that was based on a certain machine with a certain style of probe, with a certain approach of roasting, which a lot of people with, without lowering back then, myself included, were mm -hmm. trying to kind of make that same thing happen and mm -hmm. it didn't really work out, right? So it's, um, it's very important to understand the machine by itself first. And then decide where to kind of move from that, right? Mm -hmm. um, for sure. Which again, it's also pretty complicated. I think that now as well. I mean, I learned a few new things now as well that I haven't really thought about, uh, or that was maybe in the back of my head, but I didn't really uh, think as much as I as I needed to. Right? Well, and we did the darkest roast this machine's which, ever seen, which, which was, was actually a blast. we should have put that on. It was basically, I mean, this is not black, but I mean, it was it was black. It was, that was, that it was, was quite intense. dark. Yeah, that was pretty intense. It was like an American. Medium roast, no, that was dark. <laughs> dark roast in all cases. I mean, we all have we have a slightly different roast degrees here, which is yep. just really cool, right? 
Uh, and I mean, yeah, we, we realized that here. I mean, how many? We've been six different roasters here now the last few days. Uh, yeah. Again, yeah, they from were. like Ben to Mandebo to like from, from Paris, from mm -hmm. Germany, uh, Russia. I mean, pretty scattered from all over the, the world. And yeah. we all have different preferences and, and yeah. thoughts as well. So it's been, uh, it's been really interesting to see people's take on it, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And by the way, if you can't joke your other roasting buddies about, you know, just saying like, oh, you keep underdeveloping your coffee or something like that, that's one of my favorite jokes to tell to people. Yeah, sure, sure. You, you got, if you're not having fun in the coffee industry, then, you know, you're probably yes, doing something I, I wrong. I think people, <laughs> people miss out on that, right? And, and as well, like, I mean, you make, you make coffee that you want to make yeah. and you make coffee that your, your clients want to have and that's the focus, right? Yeah. Then if someone, some roaster somewhere or some barista somewhere has loud opinions about that, that's, that's up to them. But yeah. I mean, that's, let them do that. Yeah. Right? You don't necessarily have to change everything because someone doesn't like your coffee, yeah. right? Absolutely. Uh, and I still think, especially here in, in Scandinavia, there's <coughs> a lot of we, we roast for other roasters is a pretty mm. common expression where we want certain people to make a post about how Instagram posts or Twitter or whatever yeah. about how tasty this coffee is. And that's more important than making coffee that our, our clients sometimes like, yeah. um, which is uh, probably a pretty unhealthy <laughs> place to be as an industry, I would, I would yeah. argue as well. Um, what are the kind of, do you have anything like right now at this point in your career that, um, you want to research more about roasting? Do you have oh, anything? loads. Loads, I guess. But yeah. I mean, do you have any main thing that is like, this is bugging me right now and I want to just focus on this? Yeah, I, I, I would love to find some sort of way to measure bean temperature that is not just a standard thermocouple. Yeah. Um, I think that there's... What are the, could, could you, because that was kind of interesting as well. Could, could you explain what you believe is the main issues with that? Yeah, so there's... Uh, um, you know, on every roasting machine, the bean, bean probe thermocouple, or what we call the bean probe thermocouple, is registering many things other than just beans. Mm. Um, uh, we like to jokingly say, or I like to jokingly say, the, you know, and it becomes a call and response in some class that I do, but it's the bean can only tell, or the, the thermocouple can only tell you the temperature of itself. Yeah. Um, and it can't tell you the temperature of anything else except for itself. And granted, it, the thermocouple is influenced by what it's in, the, the substance which it's in, whether it be air or the mass of beans. Uh, but the bean probe thermocouple in particular is uh, not just detecting the heat from the beans, but also from any air filtration that's happening through the bean mass. There's probably going to be some radiant heat energy as well. Uh, and so it's not completely telling you the, the, the temperature of the beans exactly. And so I think that uh, if there are benefits to going thinner and, and, and there are some issues that can happen where because it's so responsive, there's also a chance that it could respond faster than the bean mass is actually able to respond. Yeah, sure. Uh, which I think uh, we do see on, on many roasting systems as well, where the thermocouple actually changes and the beans are probably not changing that rapidly because mm. they're a large organic mass of, of individual beans that are constantly being thrown up into hot airflow, which there is actually causing the majority of the heating and then falling into a mass where they're distributing it slightly among themselves. Yeah. And it's just this weird process of get hot fast, drop down, distribute, get hot fast, drop down, distribute. And um, yeah, so there, there's a lot going on inside of the drum and, and we don't really have a clear picture of that yet. So um, that's one of the things uh, that I, I think a lot of research needs to go into, whether it's you know, designing a probe that has a composite uh, material sheath Mm. that is able to more mimic the, the heat transfer properties of coffee, probably at the roasted or roasty-er level, 
uh, just because post first crack is really where things kind of start getting wild. Yeah. Uh, and so maybe we find something that has a similar thermal property to, to mostly roasted coffee uh, or you know, I don't know, something along those lines. Or uh, I know that uh, uh, companies like uh, the Alio, uh, Alio, I may be saying it totally wrong, the Bullet are playing around with infrared, which I think is a really interesting bit of yep. technology. Um, you know, you've got uh, other places playing around with real-time color monitoring, like Color Track. Uh, so I think that there's some some interesting options where people are kind of looking around and, and seeing what else there could be. Uh, I think before I, I make everybody feel really anxious, and I'm looking at the camera for those who are on audio, I'm trying to connect for a second. Before <laughs> I make everyone feel very anxious about their thermocouples, I do want to say that I, I do think they give us enough data to be consistent with what we're doing, yeah. um, batch to batch. And so we are able to be consistent and to make our customers happy with the quality of coffee that they're getting. Uh, but I think that both for research and development and for later being more consistent, I think that looking at different technology is really an interesting yeah. way forward. I mean, we, we talk about that a lot these days, uh, also reference to like color reading and, and whatnot, that mm -hmm. a number is, is always a good thing, regardless of what that number is. Yeah. I remember a few times, um, a few years back, I think that was also Tim Menabo was kind of involved in that discussion with this old pro bad having a pro that was super close to the faceplate mm. that was super super warm and i think he was um, correct me if i'm wrong tim if he even listens um i think he mentioned that it doesn't really matter what the reading is even if the reading coming slightly from the uh, the faceplate mm -hmm. because we're getting a continuous reading right yeah so regardless if that is accurate what's actually happening it doesn't really matter as long as we can roast tasty coffee because then we can just use those numbers mm -hmm. again, right? Yeah. So the number in itself doesn't have to be perfect, yeah. right? Um, to roast tasty coffee, but then, which is my biggest headache at the moment, I want to understand, mm. right? I think we all want to, to understand. Yeah. To grasp to what's more, really happening. Degree, yeah. right? Because it's, it's also an extremely random process, right? Mm -hmm. Which is, is very simplistic, but then we have a very complicated part of it where we um, I mean, we talked about, um, for example, sugars and acids and proteins and, and um, how that react differently. Mm -hmm. And then those are not evenly portioned in the bean. And I mean, it, it gets really complicated yeah. if you want it to be. Yeah. When you start thinking about the level of complexity just in the bean, it's, it's a bit problematic because you've got different beans from the same tree that are growing in different parts of the tree and have different... Uh, different chemical distributions already because they were grown on different parts of the tree starting at different times during different parts of the year. Um, well, not like different parts of the year, but you know, during different days yeah, when sure. they started growing or were, were fertilized in the first place. Then those are blended from not just one tree, but from thousands and hundreds of thousands yeah. of trees together from various parts on the property with various levels of shade, nutrition in the, in the soil, all these sorts of things. We blend them all together. We take them through processing, which uh, can sometimes be a little bit of uh, the Wild West sort of thing, where sure. it, what happens happens, and that's yeah. it. And it goes through processing, and uh, then it goes through you know, resting period, then it gets shipped inter internationally. And then when you think about even the individual bean itself, as we talked about, the chemicals are not evenly distributed throughout the bean. And so then when you're roasting the coffee, you have all these beans from various trees, various parts of the tree, gone through processing slightly differently, drying, resting at various parts. And then suddenly we're throwing it all in this roaster and we're saying, all right, now you know, fall in line sort of thing. And uh, uh, 
Yeah, sure. I mean, then we're roasting in the summertime, roasting in the wintertime, where yeah. someone is storing the beans in a, in a cold slash warm place, and you know, whatever that is, right? Yeah. It's, it's, I'm, I'm seriously wondering if it's even possible to be consistent when you roast. Yeah. Well, and I think some of the variability that exists is positive. Um, sure. So there was a, a fun uh, research thing I got to be a part of where Sitaka, which is a color sorting machine, uh, which was able to separate one Nicaraguan coffee by what hue of green it was. Okay. So you had slightly lighter greens all paired together in one category, slightly darker greens here, and then all the way to the darkest green. Mm. And I mean, it was definitely a very hedonic test. So like, it, it wasn't some like, you know, ten out of five customers agree this or whatever. Five out of ten, maybe. <laughs> but um, for us, the the big preference was actually toward the original blend, mm. because while all of the different hues of color were very interesting, they were also very one note. Yeah, and it was actually all of them kind of working together that gave that particular blend of coffee. And that was all one Nicaraguan coffee from one lot on one farm. But it was that blend that actually gave it the, the interest. Yeah, yeah. So. And I mean, that brings us back to, I, I always come back to the fact that I think Ethiopian coffee is probably the best coffee in the world quite mm -hmm. often. And a big part of that is the unrecognized blend of varietals that, that are in there mm -hmm. uh, or different strains of the same varietal. And that, that, that definitely adds complexity to it, right? So mm -hmm. do we want to sort too much? Um, I don't know, I think a, a part of me wants to, because a part of me really wants to, to start understanding this better, mm -hmm. whereas another part, of course, wants, wants really tasty coffee. But I think one of the, the things that I have understand uh, here and I have understand in general after being in the coffee industry for a while now mm -hmm. is that I think the fact that most of us as roasters are, we're so kind of locked into our expression of taste when we roast. Mm -hmm. And I'm realizing that we need to start roasting a lot more diverse to mm -hmm. be able to understand what we're doing. Whereas if, if we as a roaster as well at April, I mean, we're roasting very, I mean, we're roasting coffee that we think is tasty. Mm -hmm. That's basically the, the focus we have, right? Absolutely. The issue there is that we become very narrow-minded in, in our styles of roast. Mm -hmm. So our understanding for a wider range of roasting styles is less, mm. right? And I think a lot of us in the industry are kind of stuck in that, right? Um, because we're, we're so focused on what we do on a day-to-day -day basis that we don't have the opportunity to, mm -hmm. to think bigger. Right? Yeah, or to, to not have fear of wasting coffee if something yeah, I mean, doesn't that, work that's out. A, yeah. That's a big part of it as well, right? But yeah. then that's why it's cool to have people like you to, to write the books, mm -hmm. to do the research for us, right? Because it's really helpful for mm -hmm. all of us in terms of understanding. Mm -hmm. Um, what the fuck it is we're doing. <laughs> that I'm probably not supposed to say, but we can cut that out yeah. later. We no. uh, can bleep it at least. So we, we're going to bleep that. You yeah. just bleep it. We're going to yeah. bleep the podcast version, but not the video. I don't know. Uh, okay. Let's see. Uh, with that... You have to put the little star over your lips. If yeah, you, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But we can do that now. Yeah, That's okay. part of why we're doing this. Um, with that, I want to say thank you, Rob. Thank it's you. Time. We're going to wrap this up. It's been a very long day, a yeah. very long few days. You must be really tired. Yeah. Um, so we have a dinner to go to as well. We're in yeah. Copenhagen. We're going to eat food. About 3.30 a.m. wake up for me to go to the airport. Ah, yeah, that's intense, man. Yeah. But then everyone, read this, buy this if you don't have it. Um, why not? Yeah. And I mean, we'll see this guy in Portland next year. Yeah. yeah. And if, you, uh, if you're ever interested as well, um, just... Always hit me up. I'm available. Uh, I shook your hand while saying that, which is really awkward. But so it goes. I'll shake your hand again at the end. But yeah, if, if you're ever interested, I'm uh, at Rob Host on Instagram. Um, I usually try and write people back. If I don't, yeah. it's uh, because I usually get distracted pretty easily. So you can <laughs> ping me back, uh, and I'll, yeah. I'll I'll get to you. But uh, 
It's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Super. Well, thank once again, thank us. you, Patrick, for having me. Yeah, definitely. From us here at April, thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share with your friends, family, and colleagues. Thank you. Thank you.